This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. All so that a greater fear of God may arise in us, so that we may venture to bring forth our speech as though anticipating a judgment written not by human critics, but by the angels of God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered Today's sermon was preached by Origen in the early 200s. It is by far the earliest sermon that we have done so far in yes. Revive Thoughts. We have gotten there to the very early 200s. We're, I mean, 1,800 years ago. I, I love this. This is going back to those early ones. Uh, whenever we get a church father on, honestly, it's fantastic. Uh, right now, we have one in the works by Basil and one in the works by St. Augustine. So we're closing that gap on history origin to look we're going to talk a little bit more about it he's a controversial figure yeah there are people who would say look he shouldn't even be on this show he's a heretic uh we understand where you're coming from there's also quite literally the fact that he is he is a church father whether you agree with him or not and we're going to put a sermon out here let you guys hear our discussion on him and let you guys kind of think it through yourself what you believe and after listening to him preach decide for yourself whether you think he has earned it or not. Origen was born in 185. It has. I have to like rethink how I say dates because you don't go. I'm usually used to yeah. looking at, at four numbers. So 1492 or something. And right. This one's different. 185. That is early. He would have been born within like a lifetime of the apostle John. Like his grandfather could have known. His his dad could have known the apostle john if he knew somebody who was 90 you know theoretically they yeah. would have been able to you know he could have seen like the last the last as a baby he could have been in john's life and then you know it's a little funny but that's how close we are to the apostles right his dad and mother converted to christianity at a young age and his dad would actually be beheaded for being a christian and we can kind of get a glimpse into the passion of origin uh because this, we think this happened right around when he was 17 or 18 years old and he wanted fervently to go and to die with his father as a martyr and the story goes that he would have if his mother who didn't want him to go stopped him by hiding all of his clothes and he couldn't bear the idea of going out to be martyred naked so he didn't go at all but as the oldest child of seven kids and with no father anymore to provide in the picture they had to make money somehow so origin started a grammar school or basically I mean, it was a place where people could come and learn to read and write. Yeah, and and the, the, you know, he might not have started. Other people say, no, he was just a teacher there. Either way, he's working at a grammar school. He was very serious about his faith. The story goes that he studied purposely under a a pagan philosopher so that he could better learn how to defend the faith against pagan attacks. And you know, I kind of rushed over that, but just think about that. Imagine if you knew somebody who was going into ministry or a Christian guy, and, hey, where are you going to go? I'm going to go, you know, study under Richard Dawkins or uh, uh, Charles, da- Charles Darwin. He's de- but you get the idea. Like, I'm going to go find a guy who's known for being against God, and I'm going to go study under him so that I'm really good at defending what I believe. I mean, most of us would say, don't do that. He's going to corrupt your thinking, and, he, and this is the exact opposite. Origin is so passionate. He goes, I'm going to go right to the front lines. 
During this time, Gnosticism and Judaism are still a real threat to Christianity. Uh, Rome was persecuting Christians. Obviously, his dad got beheaded. Uh, he was sending them underground, but the real and the Jews were still trying to wipe them out. But the real threat was coming from Gnosticism. This idea that was present that Jesus Christ was, you know, he's kind of more of a demigod. He's not the God God. He's the Son of God, kind of a demigod. Um, there's a lot of mysticism. There's this. There's special knowledge mixed in. It's it's a real thing. It, I'm not going to say that's a perfect description of Gnosticism, but you get the idea. It's taking you know the divinity of Christ. He's, is removing that and saying Jesus is not God with God in that way. Um, Origen spent 20 years writing just this huge overview of the Old Testament, and he hoped to answer every single question from the Old Testament that the Gnostics and the Pharisees could possibly come up with and point them all back to Jesus Christ. So you can see he's really passionate, he's really smart, but if we're going to do an episode on Origen, there's also another really famous rumor about Origen, and we're going to do a little warning here, uh, not maybe a family-friendly or if you're more sensitive, we might recommend that you just kind of skip over this portion, maybe jump straight to the sermon, I don't know. Um, but Origen has a very famous part of his story, which is that there's the idea that he castrated himself. Yeah, oh boy, here we go, castration. The The story goes, the, the, it's almost kind of a legend that he... I, I remember, by the way, hearing this in Bible college. People, really? People used him as an example. Really? I, I remember multiple times, they'd be like, well, you don't want to be like, you know, this guy, Origen. I didn't even remember his name until I was doing the research. I was like, yeah. oh, that's the guy. It all makes sense now. The story goes that Origen uh, allowed women into his school, this grammar school, to learn to read and write, and he found them as a source of sexual temptation. And so as not to be tempted, he went to a doctor secretly and had himself castrated. Then later, he regretted the decision and wrote that it was not a physical temptation, but rather a, a temptation of the heart. However, one of the great criticisms against Origen is that he pioneered the allegorical idea of Scripture, and that's kind of this idea that everything in Scripture has a double meaning, and it's symbolic a lot of the time, and it's not meant to be taken literally. And there's a lot of trouble with this viewpoint for most Christians, as it takes kind of a bite out of Scripture and de-emphasizes the inerrancy of the Scripture, and I, I feel like I'm going to make a little bit of a, a of an addendum here, a little bit of an insert from the Revive Thoughts from for, the staff. Yeah, from <laughs> us here, from us here at Revive Thoughts, we often don't really, you know, give our own input or our own theological input. But us here at Revive Thoughts, we do really want to stress how important the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible is of that Scripture. When you take away the Scripture being God breathed then you run into a lot of big problems when it comes to faith and Christianity. So that's a lot of the controversy around Origen, but it's also kind of weird when you look at his life about it, when you say, hey, Origen's known for giving this more allegorical look uh, upon Scripture. And I mean, don't get me wrong, there are passages and uh, there are a lot of Scripture that does have double meanings and is yeah. have some really great There's allegorical... There's definitely symbols right. used by exactly. God. I don't think that there was, you know, some of the beasts of Revelation are literal monsters coming out of the sea. So, you know, we understand. Sure, sure. But again, once that takes away from the Bible being inerrant, we come to issues. But at, with his personal life... It's it's confusing as well, because in this story of him being castrated, we see 
I mean, that being a result of him taking the scriptures about as literally as someone can possibly ever take them, right? When you're physically, you know, when Jesus says, if an eye offend you, take, you know, pluck it out. Here, Origen is literally castrating himself to keep him from sexual temptation. So even in his own life, there seems to be some, some contradictions with what he is kind of pioneering and conveying and practicing in his life. It's, it's, it's odd and it's fascinating and it's hard to understand because we're 1800 years removed from it. <laughs> That's another thing too. We, we can't, un, we can't, I think overestimate what 1800 years does, but it does seem weird that I, it, somebody, I put it down. Basically I wrote it down as someone who takes, who's known for being, you know, figurative takes the most literal stance on the most extreme view that no one else ever held a little weird. Uh, on top of that, it was written down by a very fanatical historian. By the way, the guy who wrote this, very big fan of Origins, but he lived 50 years after his death or so. So this would have been a rumor. Um, he was a guy who wrote other hard-to-believe stories, and the rumor also has, there's a very good chance it might have been started by an enemy of Origins, uh, probably the same guy who exiled him later on. Origin would get in trouble a lot in his life for preaching uh, while not ordained, and he later on would get ordained later in life. However, at the church time, the church was against having eunuchs preach. If this was a rumor based on something he had written down, uh, I regret doing this, they would have wanted to check and be like, hey, are you a eunuch? We're not going to have you be a priest. Uh, we may never know for sure whether Origen did or did not do it. We, there's no, we can't get in a time machine, but there is a quote from him that was written down in a prayer stating that the church is to be perfect. And he even says those who are castrated aren't allowed in. So it's a strange thing for a guy to say who might have castrated yeah. himself, a weird line, of, like literally a line in there. I, look, this may not seem important. Some of you are going, no, we talked a lot about this. I get it. But the reason why is because, like I said, Origen, I remember hearing this in Bible college. He's used it as an example of crazy fanaticism, of religious extremism going too far. Look at him. He did this thing to himself. Maybe he did... But maybe he didn't. And if he didn't, and we're not sure, that means that not only are we repeating the lie of maybe an enemy from his own day that slandered his name, but we're actually carrying that out throughout all of history. And we've all been bad-mouthing a guy for something that maybe he didn't actually do. We don't really know, but I do think we should be careful to just assume he did. From the time of Jesus Christ all the way to today, God has been building his church. Each step along the way has been filled with stories of men and women filled with the Holy Spirit who lived their life for Jesus Christ. Church History is a podcast that tells their story. In chronological order, we tell the stories we all should know. You can find Church History on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or at lauraleesiemens.com. Church History. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account 
to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Origin has other viewpoints as well that are looked down on. We don't have time to, to jump into all of them here today. Maybe maybe a future episode we'll kind of talk more about uh, people's views on Origin. But there's also a, a, a big following that thinks that he's one of the great defenders of the faith and one of a great one of the great church fathers. He wrote a work called Contra Celsum. And it's a full defense of the Christian faith. During his day, Christians were getting hit pretty hard by pagan philosophers, and Origen was one of the first to truly rise out and strike back against them by defending the Christian faith against them specifically. He also preached sermons from pretty much every book in the Bible. And again, this was to help illustrate how all of the Bible was useful for Christians. And it all told the story of Jesus and pointed back to Jesus being the Savior. Part of what made Origen kind of stand out was that he, he described himself as more of a Christian philosopher rather than a pastor. He wrote a lot of books about defending the faith and his thoughts on life. And although he did preach, it was more of a, a theologian or almost like a, a professor by today's standards. And this role he took on as like this Christian philosopher, I'm going to think through everything, put him in a lot of fights with the bishop of his town. This bishop uh, became famous for kind of taking his role and rising above the regular priest, putting himself in the real center of power. And Origen, the kind of town philosopher theologian, uh, would go on, he'd butt heads with this guy a lot. Uh, this would end up with the bishop eventually kind of banning him, sending him out, uh, putting him in prison, you know, just a whole lot of trouble. But the main thing, though, I, I think that you would have to be a little crazy to deny whether you like him or not, you love him or not. Origen was a passionate guy. And this passion of his led him to want to preach from pretty much every part of the Bible, show it all as the word of God. And we're going to listen to a sermon of his from Ezekiel, one of the oldest sermons we can get. I mean, it's nearly 1800 years old. And, you know, from there, listen to it. And, and I think the part that strikes me the most is how similar it sounds like sermons we would hear today. And I love just, it's 1800 years, but our faith is just that strong. It just, it stands firm for 1800 years. is a sermon by Father Origen from either the 2nd or 3rd century on a text in Ezekiel. He points out the way that the false teachers teach and the words God had for them versus the way that the true prophets of God will speak. Scripture does not remain silent about any category of sins and fail to teach its readers about it. For it is right that the word of God, which had been sent in order to restore to health those who listened, should touch on every category of sins. It should speak to the whole human race so that no one would be cheated on the medicines leading to salvation and of those treatments which could be useful for healing wounds. Therefore, the word speaks to groups of people who have different roles. It speaks to laymen in the congregation, the chief priests, the elders too, all so that each group would receive exhortation toward better things. And also the other group would not plunge into worse things. Now the same way the divine teaching about the false and true prophets should be explained. So that we should accept people as prophets to the extent that they render service to God's word. But 
We must also call false prophets certain teachers of the churches whose speech or lives do not agree with the teaching they proclaim. For this reason, we are joyful if Scripture happens to advise us to move away from vices, and even more so if the Word of God happens to touch on some of our order, since we wish to be made whole and to be converted from our sins. The Word of the Lord came to the prophet Ezekiel, saying to him, Son of man, prophesy for me to the prophets of Israel. There were indeed other prophets of Israel who are prophets in name more than truth. And there are also today in the true Israel, that is, in the church, certain false prophets and false teachers. The word makes this announcement to them. Now, if the word of God accuses me, I will attempt to be converted. I must not be silent because certain things are said against myself when I am seen as a teacher of the church. Instead, not even sparing myself, I will reveal everything that is said, so that I may be converted from my own vices, so that I may become not one of those whom Scripture is not rebuking, but one of those who stood up as teachers in the church by preaching the word of God most faithfully. Prophesy to the prophets, Israel, who prophesy from their own heart, and you will say to the prophets, just as he who was ordered to say these things had need of the Holy Spirit, so also there is need of the same Spirit for one who wishes to explain their hidden significance, in order to show that the prophecy before us is directed against the one who teaches what is contrary to the will of God. It is against those who prophesy from their own heart. Indeed, according to the simple understanding, some of the prophets, since they spoke from the divine spirit, did not speak from their own hearts, but from the mind of God. While others, inasmuch as they pretended to be prophets, and said, Thus says the Lord, when the Lord was not speaking in them, were false prophets. The passage before us, however, can also be seen as properly regarding those who teach in the churches, if they teach anything other than what the truth demands. For if any teacher speaks what the Lord Jesus Christ spoke and understood, and does this on the same subject, then he speaks the words of Jesus, the Son of God, not from his own heart, but from the Holy Spirit. If he agrees with the wishes of the Holy Spirit, who spoke in the apostles, he does not speak from his own heart, but from the heart of the Holy Spirit, who spoke to Paul, who spoke to Peter, and who also spoke to the other apostles. But if any teacher, while reading the gospel, imposes his own opinion on the gospel, not understanding it in the way that the Lord spoke, that one is a false prophet. For he is speaking from his own heart in the midst of the gospel. It is not at all ridiculous to interpret these words in reference to the heretics, for they give speeches on the fables about their eons as though it is from the Gospels and the Apostles. They're expounding their own heart and not the heart of the Holy Spirit, for indeed they are not able to say, but we have the mind of Christ, such that we see the gifts 
that have been bestowed on us by God. But then this text, which can be understood in reference to the heretics, also applies to me, for I am called a man of the church. And so I accept the holy book as true, and I strive to interpret it. And then I ask my listeners to pay close attention and receive the grace of the Spirit, about whom the reference to discernment of spirits was made, so that they become approved, will observe when I am a false teacher, and when I am truly proclaiming what belongs to piety and truth. So then, if I find the mind of Christ in Moses and the prophets, then I do not speak from my own heart. But if, on the other hand, I find nothing consistent with Christ and simply fabricate for myself things to say, moving here and there in the midst of discourse that would be alien to God, then I speak more from my own heart rather than from God's thoughts. Back to our text. Prophesy and you will say to the prophets who prophesy, and it does not simply say from the heart, but from their own heart. And you will prophesy and say to them, listen to the word of the Lord. This is said to me. This is said to him who claims to be a teacher. All so that a greater fear of God may arise in us. So that we may venture to bring forth our speech as though anticipating a judgment written not by human critics, but by the angels of God. For I know that when that order sits on the tribunal, prophesied by Daniel, and the books are opened, all my endeavors, all my expositions will be brought out into view, either for my justification or my condemnation. For my justification will be those things which have been said well, but for my condemnation, those explanations which were different from what the truth demands. For from your words you will be justified, and from your words you will be condemned. This statement is made as though to one whose words are not all of the sort that would justify him. Nor again are they all of the sort that would condemn him. If anyone is unsullied by words that are not known to God, then from his own words he will be justified and not condemned. If, however, he has never spoken rightly, but instead always speaks wicked words, then from his own words he will be condemned and not justified. But we who are perfect in every way and do not speak in such a way as always to be justified, but are also not on the other hand such sinners always to be condemned, have both, some words of which we would be justified and others from which we would be condemned. For this reason, God, placing both on his scales, weighs them carefully and judges which are the words for which I am just, and which the words for which I am condemned. Now what he does in the matter of words, he will do likewise in the matter of acts. 
For it is necessary that there are some deeds for which we would be justified and others for which we would be condemned. And indeed, I am neither so perfect that all my deeds would be such as to make me stand out as just, nor such a sinner that all the deeds I have done are of the sort that would condemn me in every respect. Moreover, the fact that there are some deeds of one kind and other deeds of the other kind emerges clearly from the statement, the sins of some people are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others follow them. In the same way also, good deeds are obvious, and those which are otherwise cannot stay hidden. This holds true equally in the matter of thoughts. For this reason, the judgment of thoughts, alternately accusing or satisfying each other, awaits me. Regarding everything that I do, that I think, and that I say, and I wait. And the more the fear of God is inspired in me at the prospect of receiving a recompense for everything I've done, the more I ought to keep myself from sins. Oh, that I could keep myself from all sins. But if I am not able to do this, at least may I keep myself from the greatest ones. I've said much on the subject of those who prophesy from their own heart. To them it is now said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Adonai, the Lord says this, Woe to those who prophesy from their own hearts, who walk after their own spirit. There are two sins here, one of the heart and the other of the spirit. Let us consider this first from both sides so that we may be able to examine also the opposite. The apostle says, I will pray with the spirit. I will also pray with the mind. And the mind has its dwelling place in the heart. I will sing with the spirit. I will sing with the mind. Therefore, there is both a spirit and a mind in us. And just as Paul prays with the spirit, and prays also with the mind, sings with the spirit, and also sings with the mind, so also that one who is false prophet preaches from his own heart and walks after his own spirit, not the spirit of God. For a human being does have a certain spirit that dwells within, and far be it from me to follow it. Instead, understanding the Holy Spirit of God, I will follow the Lord my God. These prophets then who prophesy from their heart and follow not so much the Spirit of God as their own spirit do not see holy. In Greek, the word holy is kathalau. And the meaning produced by this word is ambiguous. For either it means that they do not see those things which are general, that is kathalika, although they do perceive to a certain degree. Or, and I think this is the better interpretation, it means that they do not see at all, although they seem to themselves to see a certain degree. Indeed, there are better eyes in us than these eyes which we have in the body. These better eyes either see the Lord Jesus who created them to gaze at him, or they are certainly altogether blind. If I'm a sinner, 
I see nothing, nor am I able to look upon the light of truth. For he said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that those who do not see will see, and those who will become blind. If, on the other hand, I am righteous, I receive grace from God, and the term seer is used of me also. For prophets were formerly called seers. Scripture says, You, the seer, go, go down into the land of Judah and abide there, and there you will prophesy. In Bethlehem, however, you will not continue to prophesy. And again, in another place, the vision which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Blessed is the one whose eyes the Lord will uncover for the purpose of seeing the marvelous things from the law of God in accordance with the supplication of the prophet who says, Uncover my eyes and I shall contemplate the marvelous things from your law. Moreover, let us look at another statement by which the false prophets and the false teachers are rebuked. And I ask the Lord, with the help of your prayers, then I may be found safe from this reproach. Like foxes in the deserts are your prophets, O Israel. The fox is a worthless animal. It is crafty. It is untamable. It is savage. The Savior said, Tell that fox, Behold, I am performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I am finished. Samson held these foxes to be necessary helpers against foreign enemies, with their tails bound together and fire added, for he had caught three hundred foxes. He sent them to destroy the enemy's crops. False teachers are of this sort, crafty, malicious, and like wild beasts. If I am such a person, I am a fox, yet not simply a fox, rather a fox in the deserts, a fox in the ruins, a fox in the rocks. For these terms are included in the different translations. These good-for-nothings are always lingering in deserts, always lingering in solitary places. For wherever a soul is inhabited by God and is full of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the heretics is not able to penetrate it. Their talk is not strong enough to break through. But where there is a loneliness lacking Christ, a desert lacking righteousness, there the poison of the most worthless teachings are active. It is of this reason that God says, Like foxes in the deserts are your prophets, O Israel. And they did not stand on a firm foundation. If you are willing to examine the false teachers, you will see that they are without strength, unstable, unable to say he has set my feet upon a rock and has made my steps straight. And because they are not of such a sort as to stand firmly established on the strong root, for this reason they did not stand on a firm foundation, but instead were found of moving their feet. Now moving one's feet even a little bit is actually a great sin. As David the psalmist sings, How good to Israel is God, to the upright in heart. My feet, however, were almost moved. 
Blessed and most fortunate is that one to whom it has been granted to stand very firmly and to have a soul with strong feet, that one who is worthy of being addressed by God as follows. But as for yourself, stand with me. The false teachers are not like that, for indeed they did not stand on a firm foundation, and they gathered flocks against the house of Israel. Whether it is the heretics proclaiming their impious doctrines or the false teachers deceiving those whose ears itch, in either case, they assemble those they teach, those they instruct as divisive flocks against the church of God. Those who said, In the day of the Lord, but were seeing false things, these did not rise up. The righteous, however, rise and say, We have been buried with Christ through baptism, and we have risen again with him. For just as we have a pledge of the Holy Spirit, whom we will receive in full after what is perfect comes, so also do we have a pledge of the resurrection. Since as yet no one of us has risen again in the perfect resurrection, nevertheless, we have risen. As Paul says, we have been buried together with Christ through baptism, and we have risen with him. So then, they did not rise up, that is, they have not yet received the baptism of resurrection. These false prophets and false teachers who said, In the day of the Lord, but were seeing false things, everything they see is false. And they are not able at any time to perceive the truth. Listen to an example. One who reads the scripture and takes it in a way other than the way it is written sees the scripture deceptively. But one who hears the scripture and interprets it in accordance with the true understanding sees the truth. Also, the saints, at least, do not perform divination. For there is no divination in Jacob. Sinners, however, do divine false things, saying, So is the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Listen to the heretics. Hear how they say that they hold to the apostolic tradition. Listen to the false teachers. Hear how they declare that their own teaching is the Lord's teaching, that their own thoughts agree with those of the prophets. And they say, so says the Lord, and the Lord has not sent them. And they begin to stir up a word. Didn't you see a false vision? For these false teachers, too, wish to stir up some sort of word for themselves in their own defense. But the Lord refutes them and says, Didn't you see a false vision? And have you not announced vain divinations and said, So says the Lord. But I have not spoken. Therefore say, So says the Lord, because your words are false. Pray for us that our words may not be false. Granted that some people, by their lack of acquaintance with discernment, claim our words are false, only let God not say so, and it will go well with us. If, however, thousands of people say they are true, but on the other hand, in the judgment of God they are false, what help will that be to me?
The Marconites also say that the words of their teachers are true, and the school of Valentinius is said to be powerful by those who adopt the lies expressed in his stories. What good is it that very many churches, deceived by heretical wickedness, have come into agreement with their own opinion? This is what I am seeking, that the Lord will stand with me as a witness of my words and that he himself will approve what is said through the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. Because of this, behold, I am against you, says Adonai the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against the prophets who see lies. These are the threats against the false teachers and those who speak lies. Moreover, let us see what he threatens in regard to them. They will not be in the discipline of my people. The people of God are rebuked in one way, the people not known to him in a different way. Son, do not disregard the Lord's discipline, and do not become weary when you are rebuked by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Moreover, he scourges every son whom he accepts. Rebuke us, O Lord! but with justice, not with fury. This is the reproof of God's people. The reproof of the sinner, however, and the Gentile, is that one which the righteous man opposes, saying, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, and do not reprove me in your fury. And so, regarding the false teachers and the false prophets, it is said, they will not be in the discipline of my people and they will not be written in the record of the house of Israel. Just as it is said in another passage, let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be recorded along with the righteous. So also in the present context, God says this, they will not be written in the record of the house of Israel, and they will not enter into the land of Israel. The heretics will stay outside the land of promise, which is a very good land, and one into which I pray we may be led. After first being enrolled in the book of the living by Christ Jesus, to whom belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Origen talks about discernment against false teachers, and of course it's ironic because some people consider him today to be a heretic, and and so it's interesting that that's the angle that you know we're talking about and listening to him from. But I think what he gets right is to need is this need to use the gift of discernment more. God can give us insight and to you know false teachers, we can trust him to protect us from these people, but how often do we pray for that? How often do we say, you know, God, show me false teachings, false things that are in my life. Give me that discernment. Help me, help me to follow you. How seriously do we take this part of our walk with God? Or do we just assume that, you know, hey, I'm, you know, it's probably a fine thing. Whatever I'm hearing, is probably great. I'm going to trust God no matter what kind of thing. I think it, I think we don't, I think we underuse this gift that uh, we have. And I, I love the way Origin kind of goes after that saying, you know, this is something we really need to take seriously. And as a guy who wrote tons of apologetics and defenses of the faith, he definitely believed that was something we need to take seriously. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Justin Becker. Justin is the editor and voice actor for the podcast Biblical Chili. He has spoken several times on topics like biblical end times prophecy and biblical history, but his favorite and the one that he's independently studied since 2003 is Young Earth Creation. He covers questions like how old the earth is and how do dinosaurs fit into scripture in his seminar series. Justin and his wife Tanya have two beautiful children together, Jasper and Story. One of the most burning questions that he has for the Lord when he returns is what's up with the duck-billed platypus? If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we are uh, just wanting to say thank you to all of those of you who have volunteered to help make a sermon happen on the show. At this point, that's like 50 to 55 people have joined us in this endeavor and have put your voices behind these men of history. And it's amazing. I wish we could show you all the comments and messages we get from people. It, It tweets and stuff. It's encouraging to a lot of people. If you would like to be a speaker for us, and to get on the show and and do a sermon for us we've gotten to where the process is pretty painless it's not too bad and we can step you through it without too much effort and maybe you you know i'm not a speaker i don't have a great voice but my pastor does or my brother does or my dad does you know somebody who does we're always looking for different kinds of speakers and so put us in contact with them we'd love to uh have a talk with them and see maybe where we could find a sermon for them this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.